course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from REI, Fireside Provisions, and Kuat Racks. Will you describe your tattoo? Uh, it just looks kind of like a, I don't know, like an eight. <laughs> it's really simple. Uh, it's on my right forearm. And um, what do you think? Do we need more descriptors or... This is Jens Holston. I put that on my arm after Chad was a few years after, and he had one on the left arm, same exact spot. I remember that tattoo as well, as do all of Chad Kellogg's friends, the Infinity Loop. By the end of his life, that tattoo had come to represent love, faith, spirituality, remembrance, and hope. It was his past and his future. It was the ethos of Chad, a path of perpetual motion. Well, my name is Chad Kellogg. I'm 38 years old. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'll whatever it takes. I mean, I'll sell, I'll sell my house. I'll get rid of all my belongings for my goals, because that stuff doesn't matter. I mean, what really matters is the life experience, the quality of life, friends and family, and health. Then the rest of it's just fluff. That was Chad from a 2010 series of interviews we did while he was trying to set the speed record up Mount Everest, almost two years ago. Chad was killed by Rockfall on Fitzroy in Patagonia. Through the years, I interviewed Chad several times for a bunch of different projects, but we were also friends. And I remember when I'd hang out with him. You know, we'd go for a run or to the climbing gym. I remember it was a lot of fun. I think there was always this sort of persona of being the suffer machine. That was Chad's nickname. But a lot of times there was a lot of smile, there was laughter, great conversations. But chatting with him on the recorder... It was intense because his convictions, the depth of what he had gone through as a person and his vision, they were clear. I remember when I interviewed him for the Cowboy and Maiden Dirtbag Diaries episode in 2008, and I remember asking him if he had considered bailing from this climb he was doing on the west ridge of Sagunyang. His partner, Dylan Johnson, and he had been without water. They'd lost a crazy amount of weight as their bodies dealt with the struggle of the climb. That question didn't, it wasn't out of the blue. And I remember he just looked at me and he said, bailing, bailing. It was almost like he thought the very word was offensive. And that intensity could be unsettling. Chad was a legend in the Seattle climbing community. Everyone had a Chad story from his partners to the dirtbag boulders who he gave jobs at his construction business. Chad wasn't the best technical climber, but his strength, endurance, and general overall comfort in places that were decidedly uncomfortable were extraordinary. Simply put, Chad Kellogg was the toughest. Period. The toughest. 
He seemed deeply curious about the edges of human endurance. He was also one of the kindest people. When he passed, hundreds of people came to the service, not because he was a famous climber, because he wasn't really, he was Chad. He was a friend to many. Today, we want to take a look at what gets left behind when someone leaves us and what grows in that vacant space. It's a different answer for the people closest to Chad and the people he inspired from afar. Today, our producer, Jen Altschul, has a story in two parts. First, we hear from Jens Holsten, Chad's climbing partner, dear friend, and mentee during the final years of Chad's life. In part two, we follow Ross Vaughn and Gavin Woody as they pick up the torch on a project Chad dreamed up but never completed. An idea so grand, it seemed almost inhuman. Oh, and a warning for listeners. This episode contains adult language that may be inappropriate for some. So if you're listening with kids, it's probably time to hit pause. I'm Fitzcahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. If you really want to be an alpinist, you want to think that you're that type of person who's going to walk up to that big face and that you're going to have the cojones truly not lie to yourself and act like you do, but truly be able to find peace as you step over the Bergstrand. And he had that. Chad didn't move inhumanly fast. And his ability on technical rock and ice wouldn't have earned him a name in the climbing community in and of itself. But what Chad did have was the mental strength to keep plodding on. Through physical fatigue, through awful weather, through sleepless nights and days with way too little food and water. For him, it was like climbing this alpine route and like not eating and shivering on ledges. That was like skiing powder for him, you know? It was just that fun. If Chad says, let's go down before you do, you're like, oh. But you were thinking it for the last six hours. Chad's level of commitment didn't just click on when he left the trailhead for some mountain. It was a force that permeated every aspect of his life. In 2007, Chad had set up base camp in the mountains of China to attempt a first ascent of the West Ridge of Sagunyang when he received word that the love of his life, his wife, Lara, had died in a climbing accident in Alaska's Ruth Gorge. A month after Lara's funeral, he was diagnosed with stage 2 colon cancer. After Lara was killed, he didn't want to live. And then when, when they were actually like, yeah, you may die, is when he realized... I don't want to die. I actually want to live. To me and what I know of Chad, that's kind of the moment when he stopped going down the hole that he was going down after Lara was killed and started forming the person that he was that I knew and that a lot of us have been inspired by. Chad won his battle with cancer and came back more determined and more committed than ever. I don't know where his energy came from. I would have just crumbled. But yeah, he was on the go constantly. And if he wasn't on an expedition, he was working like 20 hours a day. And there was no free days um, because he had to make that money to go again. I don't think there was a Chad who was like sitting in front of the TV watching the football game or something. It was just like, if you were a person that he, you know, went to have a coffee with you or something when he was in Seattle, that made you feel good, you know? And and when he was spending that time with you, he was totally present with you. He wasn't thinking about his climb or, like, the plane that was leaving tomorrow or the plane that was leaving that night that he had to be on, you know. Chad just, like, 
knew what he wanted to do. One thing we'd say, there's just not enough time, Jen's like, I just have to do it this way because like, this life is so precious. And I think it was his engagement with his climbing that inspired the community because it was just like, you could just tell he wasn't doing it to make a name for himself. He was just doing it because it was what his heart told him to do. Jens and Chad met each other in Patagonia, in the streets of El Sheltan. They knew each other by reputation, the weather looked good the next day, and neither of them had a partner. The next day after we met, we were hiking towards Fitzroy. Even walking up to the mountain, we were like, I was already thinking like, yeah, I'm probably going to end up climbing with this guy on a bunch of cool shit, because it just, it just clicked. Like, I don't even know, never even had that with any other person in my life or in, in any other relationship. Chad and Jen quickly discovered that they had a lot in common. They had both grown up in religious households. They'd both struggled with anxiety, depression, and addiction. Just Chad had an extra decade to learn how to deal with it. Like, literally a decade. They even shared a birthday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> September 22nd. I think he saw into me, and I'm pretty protective of myself. I'm a pretty private person. But he kind of just, like, pierced those barriers. Jens and Chad failed to make it to the top of Fitzroy that first attempt. They got pummeled back to El Sheltan by classically bad Patagonian wind and rain. But in the process, they learned that they complemented each other as climbing partners. Jens was a stronger technical climber, but Chad had his signature perseverance and years of experience in the mountains. Most of all, I mean, we were just so stoked to climb. I mean, People's lives were changing. People were going in different directions. And he wanted to keep his nose to the grindstone with this alpine thing. And at the time, I was like in the same headspace. All I wanted to do was climb. And everything else comes second all the time. And the fact that we knew that we had a decade ahead of us, or we thought we did, where we were just going to be able to operate like that, no distractions, no bullshit, not getting a call from anyone like, oh, work's busy. I don't know if I can do this trip. You know, it was just nice to like, be on the same page. Jens and Chad both lived in Washington, about a two-hour drive from each other, but they only climbed together in the Northwest a handful of times. More often, they'd meet in the airport on the way to somewhere far away and rad. Together, they pushed themselves hard. If they picked a route they thought they could probably get to the top of, they'd tack on another summit or pick a less probable line something to push the goal a little further out of reach, a little closer to the delicate edges of possibility. In 2014, they applied for a grant to try to make a first ascent on a mountain in Tibet. They were both in Patagonia when they heard their proposal had been accepted. I had been working on kind of hardening my mind and my heart so that I could like do what we wanted to do there, which was going to be really committing. And like, I was feeling pretty, pretty numb to, to like who I really was. And honestly, that was, when I look back on it, part of what drove us to make a poor decision. Early season, they tried a few different routes together when the weather allowed, but true to the pattern they had established, they would pick something just out of reach and they didn't actually make it to the top of anything they tried. It was kind of getting to us that we weren't getting up stuff. Because most things that Chad and I tried together, like, we weren't successful. 
actually, well, they had climbed a lot of hard routes together. They had never completely succeeded in a single goal they set out for themselves. With the trip to Tibet visible on the horizon, they needed an injection of confidence. By the time we were climbing there in Patagonia, we were sort of like, okay, let's get to the top of something because we need to build some confidence that we can actually summit mountains together. And already you can see how we were thinking was flawed. If you know anything about alpinism, you can just hear me talking and you're like, oh, that's not right. For their next objective, Jens and Chad chose Afanasiev, a route up Fitzroy, the same formation they first climbed together. For most climbers, the route would make a proud accomplishment. But for Jens and Chad, it was a step down in difficulty from the things they had been trying together. A gimme. But, in the end, the two of them couldn't quite manage to settle for a confidence builder. Instead, they decided they would climb the route up Fitzroy, then rappel down a different way than most people so that they could then go and attempt Territory as well. In a single push. Over 10,000 feet of elevation gain, most of it on technical alpine granite, with a lot of hiking in between. The night before we left to go climb Fitzroy, I remember laying in like the bottom bunk of this bunk, you know, room we were sharing. And I knew we were starting early, we had a huge mission ahead of us, and Chad was like obsessed with taking care of himself, getting us sleep, eating exactly the right thing. It had to be perfect. He was a pretty superstitious guy, it just had to be perfect. And it was like three in the morning, he wasn't around. I know he's not out partying, I know he's like, on the phone with with Mandy, you know, talking and something's up. Mandy was Chad's girlfriend. Before he left for Patagonia, he had promised Mandy that after this trip, he would spend six months at home in Seattle, pay off some credit card debt, and spend time with Mandy, who, to that point, had put up with Chad's nonstop, never-home life. But then, Chad got a call from Kyle Dempster. Kyle wanted to try a route on Annapurna 2 and asked if Chad would climb with him. It wasn't Annapurna 2 that Chad cared about. Chad really wanted to put up a new route on Everest, but hadn't been able to find a partner. Kyle said that if Annapurna went well, he'd go to Everest with Chad. And he called Mandy and was like, I really want to do this. I know I said I'd be like home for six months, but but this is different, you know? Even though he's just like trip after trip after trip, this was different. This was different. Like he had to do this, like just like he had to do everything else, but he had to do this, right? Chad and Jens left early for the six-hour hike to base camp. And the whole time they hiked, they talked. It was the first time that I'd really seen him really, like, wrestling with something. And he knew that this whole next five days that we were going to be gone, that Mandy was upset at home, is hard. But when it came time to leave the tent and go climb Fitzroy, it was game on. And he was, like, happy as a clam from there on out. Just so psyched. And I was, like, having fun, too. But it wasn't like that roller coaster fun like Chad was having, you know, it was just like, wee, yeah, this is so great. You know, I was like, yeah, this is great and hard and I love this, you know, but I was sort of like this more like edgy for me. Jens and Chad made it to the top of Fitzroy. They sat on the top for a couple hours, talked about life, and waited for the sun to go down and the temperature to drop and freeze some of the rocks into place. Then... They began their descent. And we had climbed Fitzroy, and damn it, we were going to go climb Cerro Torre right afterwards, you know, even though, like, that's absurd. And so to do that, the most efficient way was for us to descend this 
way that wasn't as safe. And, you know, six months previously, I would have been like, nah, I can't, we don't want to do that. But I had been like trying to harvest this sort of like hard edge in myself. You know, in retrospect, I wasn't being true to myself because I was trying to be someone I wasn't. And I put that up against who Chad was and it made us, I think, worse. And really, we didn't even consider the option of taking a safer way down, even though it was very much an option. We didn't even talk about it. We were just like, we're going down this way and that's it. I mean, the, the long and the short of it is we just made a poor decision and we wrapped into a large QR with a lot of hang fire and it wasn't cold enough and shit was falling down on us. And, you know, like within 30 minutes of making repels, we were sort of like, ah, oh, shit, this was a bad choice. But at that point, they were committed. They couldn't go back up. Their best option was to keep going down, look for a safer spot and wait for the temperature to drop further and hope that that froze some more of the rocks into place. And I remember that he started to repel out of the anchor that I was at and he looked up and he was just like, Russian roulette, man. They made another rappel. The rope got stuck. They yanked on it together. The rope came free. A chunk of rock came free with it. They both ducked. When Jens looked up, Chad was dead. I yelled. There were other people on the mountain, but I knew they were like on the other side of it. And like, this is a huge mountain. There's no way they're gonna hear me. But I yelled and yelled and yelled and yelled and whatever. I mean, not that it would have helped. I don't even know why, right? I kind of was like, well, I should just like cut myself off the mountain and die too, because this is like, I just had this real sense of like, that I was not gonna survive this, whether it was survive it now or later, this was gonna fuck me forever, you know? And then it flashed in my mind that I can't throw myself on the mountain because I need to get back down to Mandy and Chad's parents and I need to tell them what happened. So I need to like get myself off this thing. I think I had like 30 more repels to do by myself. The minute I wrapped away, I was like, oh, I'm fucked. I probably won't survive this. And it's been a battle to survive it. Like I'm still just like on that journey back from there. In media and social media and climbing media, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about PTSD and like how climbing is this really great thing to solve those problems. But I'm kind of coming up from the other aspect where I'm like, going climbing for me, I have panic attacks now. You know, I'm not like, like, I'm not like the war veteran who like going climbing helps them deal with it. I'm like, actually what I need to do is not go hiking or climbing because <laughs> that's what brings it on. So what do I do? You know, so I want to get myself to a point where I can help others who have dealt with this kind of stuff and like we can come up with some solutions on how to survive after things like that happen because just going back to climbing some people can do it but you know I know a lot of people can't you know how do you move forward and carry out Chad's legacy or honor his memory yeah yeah that's a good question and definitely one that I thought about because it, it wasn't kind of the in the ways that you would think at first I kind of thought, oh, well, maybe I'll go do this route or I'll do that route. And I did do, I've done routes where I was like, did this for Chad. And they were fucking rad and they were helpful. But 
it's just fucking climbing. I think to honor Chad would be just to love myself. Um, to really honor Chad is to kill the demons that he saw me dealing with and to, to be a happy person. Chad always used to say, you are the story that you tell yourself. So I want to honor Chad by telling myself a fucking awesome story that helps me lead a really fucking awesome life. You know what I mean? So I think that would be like the best way that I could honor Chad. Thanks, Jens, for sharing. I think about that quote a lot. You are the story you tell yourself. So on a part two, we leave things behind when we pass away. Certainly our families and loved ones, but there are other things, that the physical things, possessions, money, property, and then the intellectual ones, legacies, and occasionally unfinished ideas. Gavin Woody, he met Chad once. Rosvon only read about Chad's accomplishments, but this one elegant idea Chad left behind captured their imaginations. The Rainier Infinity Loop is a 120 mile, 40,000 feet of gain adventure. It essentially entails two summits of Mount Rainier and the full Wonderland Trail, making an infinity loop in the process. This is Gavin Woody, former president of the Mountaineers, gifted climber and athlete. Chad's vision for the Rainier Infinity Loop, for me, learning about that was like, it was like finding a canvas from an impressionist master that had had the whole design sketched out and drawn in like a paint by numbers, you know, with the exact colors and how everything should be done, where all you would have to do would be to actually put the paint on the thing to bring it to life. It was like that. It was like finding an incomplete masterpiece that I actually potentially had the skills to bring to completion. This is Ross Vaughn. To truly understand the significance of this project to Ross, you have to go back a ways, almost two decades. So the history of my relationship with Mount Rainier starts about 17 years ago. At the time, I was very much what you would call indoorsy. I was driving a frozen food delivery truck for a living. It wasn't uncommon for me to eat a half gallon of ice cream throughout the day as I was driving around doing my deliveries or an entire box of ice cream bars. And I don't mean a small, like a 12 count one you'd buy for home. I mean a big industrial box of commercial ice cream bars, like a 24 count box. And I was working 90-ish hours a week six days a week. So on my one day off, I just wanted to sit on the sofa and drink a two liter bottle of soda and eat a family sized bag of nacho chips. And I ballooned up to 260 pounds and got to the point where I couldn't even walk a mile without having debilitating back pain. My wife, Kathy, was always trying to get me out on the trail. She always believed in me and had hope in me and didn't want to just watch me slowly eat myself to death. And I eventually got to the point where I could do a couple of miles after 
just repeated conjoling and encouragement and even nagging from her everything it took to get me out there. And then one day she proposed the idea of through hiking the Wonderland Trail. The Wonderland Trail is a 93-mile loop around the base of Mount Rainier. And I really had no reason to think that I'd be able to do it, but I loved the idea of it. It was the sort of big adventure which appealed to my imagination, and it fit my idea of myself, even if not the reality of myself. Kathy proposed that they hike the trail with their daughter, Angela, who was seven at the time. And we did. We hiked the Wonderland Trail in essentially one push. It took us 21 days total, which is pretty darn slow for the Wonderland Trail. I think the guidebooks say 10 to 14 days for an average trip. So we slowly ground that out, and by the end of it, it had just you know sparked this love of being on the trail in all three of us. And that was really the turning point. So Mount Rainier was the experience that was really sort of a rebirth for me. Ross and his family hiked the trail another five times. And then years after that first hike, Ross went back and ran the trail in three days. Eager to find a new way to experience the trail, he researched the fastest known times for the loop. But looking at the numbers, I just didn't think any of it was within my reach. And so my brain just kept kind of chewing on that problem and trying to look at a way to do to do it in a unique way or somehow a different way. He noticed that almost everyone who ran the trail ran it clockwise. He thought maybe he'd go and run it counterclockwise. And I sort of had this epiphany that the only way to really experience the trail completely would be to do it once in each direction in a single push. The next fall, he did just that. Ran the Wonderland Trail in one direction, then turned around and ran the 93 miles the other way. That was this huge accomplishment for me to go from 21 days for a single Wonderland to 89 hours for a double Wonderland. And in a lot of ways, it it sort of capped off my Wonderland career, but it also opened up all these new possibilities and made me want to find other ways to experience the mountain in as complete a way as possible. I had gone around it, but I'd never been higher than 7,000-ish feet than the highest point on the trail. And that was the obvious gap in my experience, would be actually climbing the mountain. Ross started to scheme up ways to combine a climb of the mountain with the Wonderland Trail. In the spring of 2005, he attempted the climb and the trail in a sort of S-shape. But the heavy mountaineering gear he and his partner were carrying slowed them down too much, and they were forced to bail. Then, Ross ran into David Gottlieb, a former Rainier climbing ranger and a friend of Chad's. And he told me that the route I was describing reminded him of a project that Chad Kellogg had always wanted to do. And so David told me about Chad Kellogg's Infinity Loop idea. It just 
was one of those moments, you know, where it seems like there would be a, a bell ringing in an angelic choir, you know, like, ah, and a light shining down, just uh, an epiphany, basically. And my brain just never was able to let go of it. The project seemed out of reach. Too grand, not quite human. But Ross would catch himself daydreaming about the route or researching ultralight ice axes when he should have been doing other things. Anything that seems impossible, if you break it down into small enough pieces, you can make each of those little pieces possible and then reassemble it into a possibility. And that's essentially what my brain was doing on default. Ross needed the right partner for the loop. Someone with the mountaineering skills to safely make the climb and enough endurance and mental capacity to cover the miles. If you wanted to make that into a Venn diagram, it's a pretty small sliver of people that overlap. And the one that rose to the top is the obvious choice for me was Gavin. If you take the amount of hair I have and the amount of hair he has, it averages maybe a normal amount of hair. Ross is a Rastafarian. He's a super long distance runner slash through hiker and has done some really amazing things. He calls them only known times. He, and he says that he's not a fast guy and, and is proud of that. He's back of the packer. Gavin is, I mean, geez, he's a great guy. Couldn't say enough good things about him. And really he's just a better, more together person than I am in like every way. Gavin agreed to the project. He and Ross would set out from Paradise Park, the trailhead on the south flank of Mount Rainier. The route would go through Camp Mir and up the popular Disappointment Cleaver. They would carry over the summit and down the Emmons Glacier to White River on the northeast side of the mountain. From there, they planned to run 33 miles of the Wonderland Trail clockwise back to their starting point. Once they returned to Paradise, they would repeat their climb up and over the mountain and then run counterclockwise to cover the remaining 60 miles back to the parking lot. They would stop once at the car to resupply. The rest of what they needed, they would carry with them for the entire loop. At 5.02 p.m. on Saturday, July 23, 2016, Ross and Gavin set out from the trailhead. Four miles in at Camp Muir, they ran into David Gottlieb, the person who had first told Ross about the loop. I hadn't spoken with David or anything since the previous year really when he had first mentioned the infinity loop to me and so i didn't really even know what he was going to think that we were attempting it not only did ross not know what david would think he wasn't sure what chad's friends and family would think either and that was definitely a concern with this project doing it in a way that would not seem like we were trying to make a name off of his name or belittle his memory or take advantage of it. We really wanted to honor his life and the inspiration that we had taken from the way he lived and climbed. And I definitely felt a little bit of a burden lifted when we saw David and he was supportive and essentially gave his blessing. Then that was just like all right, now it's 100%. Not only do we sort of have permission to do this, but now we kind of have this obligation as well. Mm-hmm. 
Around 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, 17 hours in, Ross and Gavin completed their first lap over the mountain and made it to the Wonderland Trail. I remember at that point feeling really overwhelmed by what we were attempting. We have just done a harder push than most people do in climbing Rainier in a shorter amount of time, and we weren't even a quarter of the way into our trip. And that just felt huge. And I really just had to let go of all of that and just focus on the next few miles. Figure, okay, well, we're just going to do these next three miles and then we'll be at White River. The two athletes pressed on mile after mile of trail. At 11.30 on Monday morning, they began their second trip back up and over the 14,410-foot mountain. Monday evening, Ross posted a photo of him and Gavin on their way down. Their fourth and final night, they slept for a few hours on the side of the trail after Ross fell asleep mid-stride. And on the evening of Wednesday, July 27th, Ross and Gavin stumbled back to the parking lot at Paradise. They had finished the loop in just over four days. A little over 99 hours, 99 hours, seven minutes. The project went great. I mean, uh, yeah, there's no other word for it. Luckily, we didn't have any epics. You know, Ross didn't have to eat my foot or I didn't have to climb into Ross's belly to stay warm. We were beat up and tired and all that, but we were safe and came back better friends than we started. There was a quote that I read somewhere that the story you tell yourself becomes your reality. And I really liked that quote and I actually put it on a sticky note and I put it on my mirror. So I saw that quote every single day with Chad Kellogg underneath. I didn't know Chad very well, but you know he was a part of my life in that way for a long, long time. And so it's really cool to then kind of come full circle and then honor his legacy by doing this project that he had wanted to do and had talked about. Yeah, Chad would be so stoked on that. <laughs> the way he looked at the sport and the way he was doing it was a little different than the rest of us like to do it. Like, it was a little different. Where even for the most hardened of our community would look at that and be like, it's a little too much for me. You know, like, I want to have a little more fun and a little bit more, you know, this and that. I think Chad would be so psyched to know that someone else thought that was cool, you know? <laughs> My brain is still not done with the infinity loop paradigm. Before we even did the Rainier infinity loop, I realized one evening that you could apply that same approach to any standalone mountain that you could circumambulate as well. The Rainier infinity loop, rather than closing a door on this big question, it seemed to really open up all the doors and windows instead and just let my mind kind of go even crazier with scheming on possible projects. 
I just see possibilities everywhere. It, it amazes me. Like some people talk about how everything's getting done. And I mean, King Solomon said that like 5,000 years ago, there's nothing new under the sun, you know, no disrespect since he's the patriarch of like three major religions, but I don't think he was correct. There's a lot of new stuff under the sun. And as we've got new means of communication and new means of navigation and new means of documenting and recording and broadcasting adventures, it just opens up more and more possibilities. I put that on my arm after Chad was a few years after, and he had one on the left arm, same exact spot. But that's sort of my reminder to like, first of all, that, that, that he's still a part of me and that our times together are still a part of me and that that experience is a part of me, you know, like it's under my skin. And, you know, it helps me to just to look at and to remember everything that Chad stood for. And just that there was no end. There was no end to this life. There was the next one. There was no, there was no climb that you could do that would cap it all off because there was the next one, you know. And he certainly climbed that way. He never made goals where he's like, if I do this, then I'm going to be happy. Or if I freaking do one more climb, then I'm going to get married and have kids. Or I'm going to like grow my business and... He was just like, I'm gonna do this forever. It was just kind of this beautiful thing just to exist. I moved west when I was still most after the bottom fell. Searching for a better story, one I would be proud to tell. The only job that I could find. Cutting down redwood trees. Sometimes you take what you are given. Sometimes you can't afford your dreams. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who stand in solidarity with the Gwich'in people of Alaska. For the last 30 years, the Gwich'in have fought proposed oil extraction projects in the pristine coastal plain where the caribou calve their young. Now, it's more important than ever that we stand up for our wild places. Join the fight. Ask your senators to designate the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as wilderness. Sign the petition now at patagonia.com slash arctic. And by the way, if there was ever anything that was actually wilderness, like I don't like the fact that it's already not designated wilderness, it's kind of insane because there's no place wilder that I've ever been in my entire life. Sorry, tie right over. Additional report comes from Fireside Provisions from REI and from Kuat Racks, innovative hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories for cyclists and adventurers. Go to kuatracks.com to check out their lineup or find a dealer near you. Support for the Diaries also comes from you. A huge thanks to everyone who donated this year. Your contributions really do make us better. If you want to support the show, go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click on the pledge button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you, Jens, Roz, and Gavin, for sharing your stories and perspective for this episode. And of course, a huge thank you to Chad for the warmth and inspiration he brought to our community. If you want to hear more about Chad's story, go back and listen to episode 27, The Cowboy and the Maiden, in 2009. Uh, you can find it on our website under this episode. There'll be a link to it there. Music today from Jacob Bain, Little Glass Men, Vienna Ditto, Kai Engel, Scott Holmes, David Mumford, Ken Christensen, Jason Tyler Burton, and Publish the Quest. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with the permission of the artists themselves. Jacob Payne and Nies Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschult, Becca Cahal, and me, Fitz Cahal. Happy holidays. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. We'll see you in the new year.
Thank you for tuning in. And remember, you are the story you tell yourself. <laughs>